0: Today, for our children's message, we're going to talk about trust and how we can know that something is true. So, Tom, what if I told you that I climbed Mount Everest? Would you believe me? No. Good. Because <laughs> I've never climbed Mount Everest. Why or why not? Uh, it's a long way away. It is a long way away. It's hard to do. It's so hard to do. You it takes... Thank you. I appreciate it. He doesn't doubt my commitment, but it's a long way away and a hard thing to do. What if I told you that I brushed my teeth this morning? Would that be a little bit more believable? Yes. Good. But you didn't watch me do it, so you'd have to take my word for it, right? That's right. Well, look at this bag. Would you believe me if I told you that I had a coveted limited edition West End mug inside this bag? Well, you've sold it pretty good, so yes. I'm glad you believe that. Okay, you all, do you believe that I have a mug inside this bag? Close your eyes. Okay, not you, you guys can look. What do you think? Yeah, okay, I'm gonna put it back. Okay, you've seen it, you can open your eyes again. You who have seen it, you can believe it, right? You saw it, it was in front of your face. But you, how can you know if you haven't seen it? It's a little trickier, right? In our gospel lesson today, someone had a really hard time believing what others told them. The story of Jesus appearing to the disciples was so exciting. Imagine they had had all of these big emotions, watching him die and feeling so upset, and then they saw him alive again. But one disciple missed out. Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus came back and didn't see him personally, and he didn't believe what his friends told him about Jesus. So when Jesus did show up, he showed Thomas his wounds. Thomas may have been embarrassed, but I'm glad that Thomas asked that question. And you know what the neat thing is? Jesus said to Thomas and to all of us, blessed are those who have not seen like you and yet still believed. He commended people who believed in him without witnessing face to face. Do you know who that is? That's us, that's you and me. We haven't physically seen the resurrected Jesus and yet we still believe in him. So we know about Jesus through the words of scripture, through the Bible, but also our experiences, right? With one another. The Bible and the story gives us great hope. We can't always see God necessarily. But what I love about the story is that it is okay. have not seen God. It's okay to ask big questions of God. That this evidence that we're presented in everyday life is beautiful and good. And because of this evidence of God in our lives and God with other people, we can know and we can believe. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for showing us your love. Thank you for helping us to believe even in those things we cannot see. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. In the hours surrounding Jesus' death, I can picture the disciples running, literally running for their lives. They had just seen what had happened to their movement's leader, They may have even heard Peter's story of being identified by his accent in the hours just before Jesus' death. The disciples are afraid for their life after being told repeatedly by Jesus himself that following him would be dangerous. Now modern readers need to be aware of the blatant antisemitism in this Gospel of John. It says that the disciples only feared the Jews But I think that the disciples feared everyone. I think that they feared the Roman soldiers, the common everyday citizen who might identify them. So at the beginning of this passage, it doesn't surprise me at all to see so many of them together behind a locked door. Perhaps with furniture between them and the doorway, maybe the lights were out Someone checking out of a window just to make sure that nobody was coming. They were worried that someone, those who had killed Jesus, were on their way to find them, to try them, to execute them. They were anxious, terrified, sleep deprived after three days of being on high alert. And after this past year, I find myself having more and more empathy for those disciples. We know a little bit more about fear now than we did a year ago. To not know exactly which direction the threat may be coming from. A tornado, a virus, a bombing, a derecho, flooding. But to stay together with those you trust. Locked doors to everyone on the outside, not daring to leave your safe space. But through that locked door, Jesus shows up, alive, and yet bearing the bodily scars of crucifixion. The text notes that Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus came to the disciples. When they tell him about it later, he is in total disbelief. I won't believe it, he says, unless I see his hands, unless I place my hand in his side where the spear wounded him. Thomas wants proof, and who can blame Thomas? John's gospel gives us no discussion of the how of Jesus being raised from the dead. There's no scientific explanation, no diagrams being drawn by Jesus in the sand or otherwise, no lecture on the transmutation of matter, and I must confess that I want that. Why and how did Jesus get resurrected? Why does his resurrected body still bear the wounds of resurrection? If Jesus could be resurrected back to life, couldn't those wounds have been healed? With no explanation except to say that it would happen, we are left with more questions than answers. And we're left with a resurrected Jesus whose side was still pierced. A resurrected Jesus that bears the marks of crucifixion, that figure is the central figure of our faith, not a physically able-bodied, perfect specimen of a man. The late Nancy Easland, author and professor at my alma mater, Candler School of Theology, she said this, the foundation of Christian theology is the resurrection of Jesus Christ Yet, seldom is the resurrected Christ recognized as a deity whose hands, feet, and side bear the marks of profound physical impairment. In other words, the resurrected Christ of Christian tradition is a disabled God. She suggests that the resurrected Christ represents a human God who not only knows injustice, and experiences the contingency of human life, but also reconceives perfection as unself-pitying, painstaking survival. This isn't about saying that disabled bodies have some sort of inspirational role to play. People who bear scars or people with disabilities don't want to be your inspiration. They don't want to be the recipient of your pity any more than you and I. However, this is to say that our glorification of this perfect, pristine, young, able-bodied Christ may literally be against the Christ, the one we now know in a resurrected Jesus, and to perhaps give comfort and hope to those who bear wounds or scars or disabilities, those left by physical wounds, and those of weapons formed against the mind. After all, we all along the way pick up wounds according to Duke Divinity School's Kate Baller we all bear the ruins of all the lives we've lived and the loves we've endured what a gift to have a savior that does the same God knows what it's like to be the recipient of scorn God and Jesus knows the experience of isolation betrayal and an unjust trial through Jesus resurrected and yet wounded body We are given proof that God knows what it's like to be wounded. The poet and professor Anya Silver died in August of 2018 after over a decade of living with metastatic breast cancer. In the years from her prognosis to her death, she knew intimately the physical scars a body could bear, the pokes and the prods of needles, the biopsies, the mastectomies, chemotherapy. And throughout her experience, she wrote poetry, scenes from her life juxtaposed scenes in the church and experiences with the disease. In an unpublished poem by Anya called The Easter Angel, she describes this homemade angel. Each piece of the angel's body was given to a different child in her church and her son got the left foot. And they decided to put foil on the sole of the angel's left foot. Here are these w- words of her poem. Though the angel's right sole may be bare, our foot will be foil shod so that it sparkles from the rafters candlelit on Easter Eve. By then, the angel's parts will have been assembled and it will hang motley and askew near the broken and bled out body of Christ. Near the bodies, too, of people sitting in the pews, lopsided, scarred, swollen with steroids, or scuffling along the center aisle in pain. Because Good Friday remains imprisoned in our cells. As we shout, Christ is risen, again. Jesus' broken body, the human bodies of those hurt and scarred in pain next to one another a reminder of Good Friday, amidst the joy of resurrection, a reminder that God chose this, God chose us. And in Jesus, God knew pain and God knew suffering and retains those marks even after the resurrection. And I can't figure out how that's scientifically possible. But faith isn't about rational scientific thinking. It's about the experience of Jesus. It's about somehow knowing that Christ is risen, that reality will never be the same again. It's about knowing that death doesn't have the final word in this world. It's about the hope that comes with belief that sometimes comes with doubt and questions. Friends, I've witnessed resurrection. I've joined hands in prayer with someone whose life had been radically changed due to the disease of addiction. I've walked with them in their own fear as they imagined a new world for themselves without dependency on drugs and alcohol. I've witnessed miracles. A woman who was at death's door, body ridden with sepsis, given a few hours to live, walks back into my church again a few weeks later, whole and healthy. I've seen families rise up against generational poverty. Communities fight back against forces seeking to destroy them. I've seen a community garden built by a man who was on death row that shed in the garden built by him who should have been killed by the state and somehow miraculously spared and instead changed lives for the better with his stories, his kindness, his generosity. But I've also been upstairs with the disciples I've locked the proverbial doors. I've dragged the couch so that it would be wedged against the door. I turned off the lights and I shuddered with fear. And my deepest fears came true. My loved one died. My parishioner overdosed. And a pandemic rages on. Justice does not come. And the governor offered no pardon for that repentant woman on death row. And I wanted to stay in that room. Locked away from the world. Comfortable in whatever false sense of safety I had created for myself. And some questions that I have in those moments. Why does a God who intimately knows suffering not stop it? Why allow this misery? Why the pain? What does this story have to say to me on those days? When all does not look like it will end well. Where is resurrection then? And at those moments, when there seems to be no hope at all, the story still speaks a word of peace. The writer of this gospel wants us to know that Jesus comes in despite the door being locked. Jesus transcends any barriers we put up against him. No locked door can keep us from him, even at our worst moments. Literally nothing we can do can separate us from his grace and presence. I love the painting on the cover of your bulletin. It's one of the few that shows this tenderness of this intimate and grace-filled moment between Jesus and Thomas. They're in a dark room, not all paintings show that. And Jesus offers peace to those scared disciples. But this promise of peace isn't simply a peace that allows us to say, okay, we're going to just rest easy behind this locked door. It's a peace that sends us. Our faith moves us beyond the locked door. We're not expected to stay in place. The gift of the Holy Spirit simply used to just comfort us. Instead, Jesus uses the language of sending In fact, we're sent out to the world in the same way Jesus was sent to us. Jesus breathes on us. What a dangerous way of of giving the Holy Spirit, right? In 2021, Jesus is breathing on us, saying, receive the Holy Spirit, and then sending us out to meet the world. It comforts me that Jesus does not reprimand the disciples. He doesn't scold them for running and for hiding and for locking the door. He doesn't chastise Thomas for wanting physical proof. Poor Thomas. He has carried around the moniker of doubting Thomas throughout history when in fact Thomas's questions provide us with this opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself. As someone in Bible study put it, we are in the doubters' debt Thomas asks the same questions we would want to know if we were absent the first time he appeared to. And in Thomas's later ministry, we hear stories that he traveled all the way to India to share about Christ, that he faces hardship for his faith. And these stories tell us that he was martyred, dying for his faith. But going back to that room, Jesus doesn't explain away the bad. Jesus doesn't tell them that nothing bad will ever happen to him. He simply shows up, revealing graciously who he is. And we take comfort in the fact that he knows pain, that he has holes in his wrists and in his sides, that he knew thirst, abandonment, loneliness, betrayal, and yet he still offers grace to us understanding our limitations of belief. The gospel writer knows these limitations too and even tells us that these things were written down so that we would have faith. At the beginning of the gospel, the writer John poetically declares that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Throughout the rest of John, the writer spends the time proving to us how the person of Jesus was God. And he closes this loop so beautifully with Thomas' statement, my Lord and my God. Jesus responds to Thomas' affirmation of faith with a word of hope. For those, us, who will come after having never seen the physical body of Christ, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. A faith unhooked from sight. My friend Anya had a word to say about this as well. So I will end my sermon this morning with a poem from one of my favorite collections of her poetry. The book is called I Watched You Disappear. And the poem I'm going to be reading from is called No It's Not. The body of Christ, the priest murmurs, placing a morsel of bread in my palm. Only I hear my son whisper, No, it's not. Eight year old skeptic, creed smasher, how to stop the erosion of what's possible or unhook face from what can be seen. One evening, Strolling the Jersey Bay, we took flailing horseshoe crabs by their spiny tails, tossing them into the tide so they could glide back into the deep sea. And wasn't that impulse to save the ugly, love, my doubter, my miracle denier, may God hurl your spiky edges into the waves. May you be cradled in his body forever. Amen.